Hello, and welcome to another great message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Thanks for joining us today. For notes and video related to this message, please visit www.parkviewchurch.org. Well, good morning. We are in a study of 1 John. If you have your Bibles, you might want to open up 1 John chapter 4. And this passage is all about the love of God. And we, when, whenever we think about love, I think oftentimes we think of the love that we experience, hopefully in our, in our families or how that, how that looks. Here's a picture of our family last Christmas. Uh, this Christmas, it's going to be about plus about four more people. But there's our family. And as you look at, at our family, you'll notice that there are probably three children who have been adopted, one from Ethiopia, two from uh, the Congo. And uh, you, would, you would wonder, you would think, uh, why, would, why would a parent uh, want to adopt children, especially if they have six of their own, or, or natural, why would they want three adopted? And um, when you think of what goes into adoption, there's a tremendous cost. There's a lot of time. It's emotionally consuming without a, without a doubt. But what the legal action of adoption does is takes a child outside of a family and puts them inside of a family, gives them all rights, all privileges, just like anybody else in the family. They're exactly the same. And so... Uh, why? Why would a child be chosen then? Uh, did they have to do something? Did they have to perform a certain way or behave a certain way in order to be adopted? No, not at all. Well, did they have to pass a test in order to be adopted? Uh, or maybe did they, have to, did they have to do something, something special like a song and dance routine, sort of like Annie and, and uh, with Daddy Warbucks had to do a little song and dance routine, ho- hopefully to get to the point where Daddy Warbucks would adopt little orphan Annie. No, uh, not at all. Uh, the, the entire motivation for adoption is singularly the overwhelming love of the parents being poured out upon the undeserving son or daughter. The truth of the matter is, every single one of us crave that kind of love. We crave to be loved, not because of what we do, not because of how we perform, not because of how good we are, not because of, you know, I keep, I'm keeping everything tidy. It's just an unconditional love in spite of who I am. Every single person alive craves, longs for that kind of love. You long from it, for it from a spouse. Your kids long for that kind of love from their parents. You long for that in your neighborhood. Wouldn't that, be, wouldn't that be unusual to have that in the work in the workplace to to be just to be loved instead of downgraded? You know, every little thing you do wrong, you know, no, notation, 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 and all you do is downgraded, and, and you're never uplifted. Wouldn't that be unusual? And yet God has called us, even in the workplace, to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. God's love is absolutely totally unconditional and limitless. And throughout this book of 1 John, we're going to see how love is to be displayed. 
We're going to see, uh, we saw in chapter 2 that love is the proof of our fellowship with God. In chapter 3, we saw that love is the proof of our sonship. And now we get to the summit, we get to the climax of John's description of love. And it deals with God's very nature. So this one commentator said that uh, in this epistle then, it rises to the summit of all revelation. All revelation climaxes right here. And it's, we're going to see that in just a second. And we're going to see it's also built around these four, four commands to, to love one another. It begins, love one another. It ends, love one another. And right in the middle of the passage, two more times, love one another, love one another. But we can't love unless we are first loved. And John takes great pains to assure us of God's incredible love. So he gives us that assurance. He, he gives these, these practical evidences of how we can know that God loves us. And so I'd like to just jump right in and look at the first evidence, and that's God's love is evident in his very nature itself, verses 7 to 8. Beloved, let us, here it is, love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so one commentator said, it's, it's like you're getting closer and closer and closer. You're in a palace and you're getting closer and closer and closer to the throne room. And then finally, the throne room door is opened up and it's, look, God is love. So throughout the whole, throughout the whole book, we, we've seen provisions of his love, care for his love, acceptance by his love. And to me, I, I just thought of Mother's Day. And on Mother's Day, we'd be celebrating Cheryl. And, and I would ask the kids, six kids, why do you love mommy? And the kids would all go through the thing. Oh, I love mommy because she, she gives us good food. Yeah. Every day she takes care of us. I, I, I love mommy because when I hurt myself, she takes care of my needs. I love mommy because of this and that. And, and so from this passage, I would say to my kids at that point, well, why do you think mommy does all that? I don't know, because she's mommy? No, I would say this, and this is what the passage is saying. It's no, because mommy is love. That's the essence of her being, is love. And everything flows, everything that flows out of her is love. That's what John is saying about God. God is love. Everything that comes from him is love. So it's not, it's more than just that God loves. It's he is love. So all of his, act, of his activity is loving because love is his very essence. Again, God's love isn't a conditional love. There are other kinds of love, eros love, an erotic kind of love, sexual love. There's phileo love, a brotherly love. But that's not, those aren't the loves that we're called to. We're called to agapao. We're called to this godly love. So it's not conditional. It does not at all um, depend on the attractiveness of the object. It's utter, It's something that cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. God loves because his nature is love. 
So it's from God. We're born of God. And now what I'd like to do is turn that, turn it over to uh, Thomas. And Thomas, he's an intern at Parkview. He grew up here at Parkview. Um, I remember him when he was one years old. I guess when we first got here, we had dinner with their family. They were one of the first families to invite us to dinner. We went to the Highlander. And you were one in the high chair, and your sister is a little bit older. I don't think she's in the high chair still. But uh, you've come a long way, Thomas, and he's uh, going to seminary. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy and just really thankful. So come on up. Thanks, Jeff. I have to admit, I don't remember that, but uh, I'm sure it was a great time. Well, good morning, Parkview. Uh, it's good to be here with you. The second assurance of God's love that we see here in 1 John 4 is the incarnation and cross of Christ. It's sort of a two-for-one, the cross of Christ and the incarnation. So I'll direct you to verses 9 and 10 in 1 John 4. Now, just like with everything else in the Bible, if we want to know what God is like, if, if we want to know what God's love is like, then we need to look at Jesus because he is God in the flesh. Uh, now, in John's Gospel, another book of the Bible written by the same author that we just called John, um, he tells us in verse 118 that Jesus has made the invisible God visible. Uh, it says this, No one has ever seen God, but Christ has made him known. To put it another way, uh, Christ has explained God to us in human terms, in, in terms we can understand. And, and John is returning to that very fact in this passage today. He says Christ is the complete manifestation of God's love in verse 9. He says, Christ is the ultimate revelation of God's love. And he repeats this fact using the repetition of this two-word phrase, in this. Verse 9, in this is God's love manifested. Verse 10, in this is love. And uh, these two separate definitions, they're each talking about God's love, uh, but from a slightly different angle. And I like to think of it as like our two eyes working together. So uh, a lot of you are pointing your eyes at me right now. If you were to close one of your eyes and then do the other one, you'd notice that uh, each one has a slightly different image of me, a slightly different angle, because your eyes are set apart a little bit. And that's actually what gives you depth perception that enables you to see how far away or close something is. And in the same way, uh, these two definitions working together from a slightly different angles of God's love show us the depth of God's love. And the two definitions of love that are on display in verse, are in verse 9, the incarnation of Jesus, and in verse 10, the sacrificial death of Jesus. So let's start with verse 9. It reads like this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. You know, I wish that Christmas weren't the only time that we celebrated, uh, meditated on, wondered at uh, the incarnation. Uh, so the incarnation, if you don't know, is the event that we celebrate at Christmas. And it's, it's when we celebrate the fact that God's son took on human flesh. Incarnation. If you've had carne asada, you know, this is sort of the word that means meat, flesh that God came in the flesh. He put on flesh, and he was born as a baby in Bethlehem. In this passage, John is actually telling us that if we want to know what, what God's love towards us looks like, the first major movement of that love was the incarnation and, and him coming. To put it simply, the, the incarnation of, of Jesus was the event in which the eternal, uncreated Son of God, he traded angelic praise for abject poverty on earth. 
He left a majestic throne in heaven to, to be born and placed in a muddy, mangy trough on earth. It's when he abandoned beauty and blessing in heaven to come experience disease and decay on earth for us. That's love. Um, a, a theologian named Kierkegaard tried to explain it this way. He told the story of a powerful king and a beautiful maiden. He said, there once was a wise, wealthy king, but above all, he was powerful. No matter what he said, no matter what he wanted done, people just did it for him. He was so influential, so powerful. But he had fallen in love with this beautiful woman in, in his village. And, uh, but he was a wise king. And so he said to himself, if I march down there with my crown, with my robe, with my ring, with uh, all my men marching in front with their flags and whatever they do, uh, then, and try to have a relationship with this woman, then... I'm never really going to know, and, and maybe she'll never even know, if, if our relationship is really based on love for, for me or just respect for my power. And, and if she's just doing what I say like everyone else in my life does. So this wise king said, if I want to have a real relationship, if I really want to have love, even the chance of love, then I'm going to have to leave my power behind. I'm going to have to leave my office behind. I'm going to have to shed those things. And, and so he went to this woman's house dressed as a beggar, because indeed he was. He had left everything behind for the chance of love. And Kierkegaard is saying that's, that's what it was like when Christ came to earth, leaving all of that beside just for the chance of love. That's a pretty compelling explanation, right? And I think it tells part of the beauty of the incarnation. Part of the love that God shows for us is indeed, uh, Philippians 2 tells us that uh, Christ laid aside some of the privileges of being God in order to fulfill his mission, in order to love us. And yet, uh, the end of verse 9 doesn't say that, that God came because we were beautiful. That, that would still be conditional love, right? We were beautiful enough for him to love him. What does it say? It says, so that we might live. So that we might live. What does that imply? That apart from God's intervention, we are not sparkling, beautiful, but simple maidens waiting for a heavenly king to come and rescue us, but rather we're, we're dead in our sin. We're, we're broken. The reality of our brokenness, the reality of our deadness in our sin means that Christ didn't come first to win his people, win his church, woo them, romance them, or anything like that. First he had to resurrect them. First he had to revive them. And that's right where verse 10 picks up. It says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John is saying, you know, it's one thing to love the lovely. It's easy to love the lovable, right? They're lovable, it's in the name. It's another thing to love someone who doesn't deserve your love. But the fullest, most complete understanding of God's love as manifested in Jesus is this. Christ died for us while we were still his enemies. And yet, God's love also is, is not only a matter of his affections toward us, it's also a matter of justice. That's what verse 10 is, is getting at. No matter how much God loves us, he cannot just overlook our sins. God is a just judge. Uh, he cannot overlook our sins. An earthly judge who let the guilty go free because he loved them would be run out of town. How much less can God do that? 
In, in fact, God is the ultimate judge. Uh, he doesn't just weigh the evidence of our guilt or innocence like a, an earthly judge in a human court where they just look at the outward things, at the, at the, at the external. But he's the judge who, who John says in 1 John 3, just a chapter ago, he says God is the judge who knows everything. He knows everything. Not just the outward things that we've done, which we, we would all say there's something wrong with those, but he looks inward into our very hearts into our intentions, into our motivations, all of our wickedness, all of our sinfulness, all of our deadness and ugliness is laid bare before him. We are filleted in front of this judge. And in the face of that rebellion, this is God's love, in the face of that rebellion, he put forth the only card he had. He sent the son. He sent his son. He sent his only son. And that's what that word propitiation is getting at. I know it, it sort of sounds like a medical uh, phrase, maybe like I'm, I'm going to go get some propitiation done or something like that. That's not what it's getting at. I know it sounds like that. Uh, but it's getting at the fact that our sin has incurred an eternal punishment uh, that needs to be propitiated, uh, needs to be satisfied. And there are only two ways for an eternal punishment to be paid off. Uh, one way uh, is that uh, a finite person, a person with a beginning, a created person, someone like you or me, could pay that penalty off endlessly, eternally. Or a- an infinite person, an uncreated person, someone, someone like Jesus, could pay it just once. And on the cross, that is, that is what Christ did. He loved us. We who were not the prim princesses who deserved his love but the walking dead. What love God has for us, what grace that we don't deserve, that our king knows our ugliness, knows our problems so thoroughly, yet loves us completely. Have you ever thought about how strange it is that that as Christians we use the cross as our symbol? Uh, The very tool, the very execution method that killed our king? That's strange. Uh, the, the Greek philosopher Socrates was infamously executed by being forced to drink a cup of hemlock poison. But I can't imagine that if we were in the church of Socrates that they would have a leaf of hemlock on their wall. So, so what's the deal with our cross? The fact is that Christ has turned in his crucifixion, in his life, in his love, he has turned the ultimate symbol of humiliation, scorn, and pain into the ultimate symbol of God's love. And Christ urges us not only to look at the cross and and think about how much, how bad we are, but to think about how good God is and how much he has loved us. He urges us to remember his cross and to remember that when we were at our worst, God sent his best. For the Christian, the, the love that we see expressed in Christ's cross is not our only hope for eternity with God only, It's also our only hope for day-to-day life today. We are sustained by this love. He directs us to his cross. And we are so prone to go other places looking for the love that God has already freely offered us in Christ. Yet he longs for you to receive his love today and every day. So that if you are here feeling unloved, he directs you to consider his cross, where he loved you not because you were lovely, Uh, but actually in spite of how lovely you are. If you're here feeling worthless, 
Consider that the one through whom every bit of eternity, every bit of matter, every bit of dust was created, thought you were worth his time, thought you were worth his love, thought you were worth his life. If you're here feeling worthless, consider his cross, where he died for you, not because you were worthy of his love, but in order to make you worthy. If you want to know what love looks like, and maybe you're here and you've been searching your whole life for what true love is, that search ends at the feet of our crucified Lord. Never before and never again will the world see love like this. Now, when we take communion, uh, which we're going to do just shortly, we're remembering, celebrating what the Lord Jesus has done for us, and we're showing outwardly, symbolically, uh, what we believe spiritually. So I have always loved food. And one of the things that I love about eating is that the fact that that old adage, you are what you eat, well, that's actually true. So uh, your body is continually going through this process of, of some of your cells dying and then being replaced by new ones, uh, this process of regeneration. And so uh, scientists have said that about every 10 years, almost your entire body is made up of new cells and that all of that uh, matter that goes into them is actually from the things that you're eating and drinking every day. And, and so that means that while some people use those workout tapes like Body by Jake, I can really say Body by Donuts, right? <laughs> so, but when we take of Christ's body in his bread, when we take of his blood in the cup, we are declaring that we want to be composed of, see our old self replaced by, be made more in the shape of him. We want the unloving dead parts of our life to slough off, fall off, die away, and so that we can grow into the shape of Christ, the one who showed us what God's love looks like. So with this in mind, let's celebrate what Christ has done for us. Uh, if you're here and you haven't yet trusted Christ with your life, I would urge you to let the, the cup and the, and the bread pass you by. Uh, I don't want this to be an empty religious ritual for us, for anyone here today, uh, and instead to consider what it would mean uh, to let him love you for the first time today. Christ longs for us to know his love, whether it's by accepting it for the first time today or by being reminded and experiencing yet again what he has done for us. Thanks so much, Thomas. Appreciate that very, very much. So we're looking at the assurance of God's love. What are some of the evidences of God's love? And so what we saw is it's his very nature. God is love. And then we looked at the, the evidence of the cross itself. And now we're going to be looking at the evidence of the body of Christ. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So Thomas shared that in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, Jesus made visible the invisible manifestation of God. And so now he's saying it, it wasn't just made visible through Jesus when he was here on earth. Now it's made visible through the body of Christ, through uh, the church. Do you remember that story back in Luke chapter 7 where Jesus was invited by a Pharisee to come in and have dinner? And there was a, a young lady that came in. She was, she was a, a woman a sinful woman. She went in and she fell at his feet and she um, began weeping and crying and anointed his feet with oil. She cried and, and would use her hair to wipe his feet. And of course, the Pharisee was very indignant at this. But then Jesus said, he who has forgiven much loves much. 
But he who has forgiven, been forgiven little, loves little. I think that thought alone should absolutely radicalize our relationships. Uh, this is a very self-sacrificing love. Jesus showed it on the cross, a self-sacrificing love. And, and so he's saying now that this is the kind of love we should display. It's not something that you just add to your discipling program. Oh, now I need to start doing this. Not at all. It's not something that you add to. It is something that is an internal constraint. It's something that demands you are different. And the only way you're going to love like this is you have to be loved like this. This is, this is who you are. And so the church is to be a community of this kind of love. Uh, Francis, Francis Schaeffer called it the ultimate apologetic. When believers love like this, it is the ultimate apologetic. Uh, Jesus put it this way in John 13. It's by this that all people will know that you're my disciples if you have this kind of love for one another. It's the hallmark. It is the Christian uh, characteristic. So now we need to know, how is this how is it all going to look? We, we've seen the assurance that we have. Uh, we've seen the evidence in his nature, the evidence in the cross, the evidence in the church that we're loved. People, people love me like this. So there's a lot of evidence. How will it be manifested? And so let's look at the next nine verses, the manifestation of love. Uh, and it's going to come, first of all, being manifested in our intimacy with him. Starting in verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Testify that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what John is saying is this. Not only has God done something for us in manifesting his love for us on the cross, but God has also done something in us by giving us his Holy Spirit. So in other words, what John is saying is, look, we're not, we're not just students uh, reading a book. Uh, we're not just spectators observing a very deeply moving act, like watching the Passion of the Christ. Uh, we're not just, and these are wonderful things, but we're not even just recipients who receive a life-changing gift. We are participants in the drama of God's redemptive story. So God's ultimate purpose in the plan of salvation is to actually live in us. It's not just to give us an example, not just to do something for us, but to live in us, to change our lives. So God isn't satisfied just to tell us that he loves us. He's not satisfied uh, just to show us that he loves us. His desire is much deeper than that. His desire is to actually live in 
us, to abide in us. So he gave us his Holy Spirit. That's always been God's plan from the very beginning. You go all the way back to the garden. The whole picture of the garden was that, that God would dwell with us. We'd have a relationship with God. And yet, of course, the whole story of Adam and Eve, they went their own way. They did their own thing. And so God tries again. The next thing you see, we see uh, the Lord walking with Enoch, walking with Noah, walking with Abraham. And then, uh, again, they fall away. So he, then he dwells with them in a tabernacle, Exodus 25, and the glory comes down and dwells in a tent. And then all of a sudden, they rebel again. They go their own way. And so we find David trying to restore Israel and Solomon then rebuilding a magnificent temple. And then the same thing happens again. There's utter rebellion again. And uh, God has to then come down again after the, after the dispersion to dwell in the land. They're taken into captivity. The temple is destroyed. And you think, is it ever going to happen? Will God ever really be successful in accomplishing what he wants to accomplish to actually dwell with man? Will it happen? And then all of a sudden we read in John 1, and the word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's the incarnation. God himself then indwells and comes down in the person of Jesus Christ. And we go, oh, finally, he's here. It's happened. And then what, what do we do again? We nail him to the cross. You think, are you kidding Time and time and time and time again, God wants to dwell with man. And yet we even put Jesus on the cross. And we think, oh, it's, it's over. And yet Jesus uh, rises again from the grave. And then he actually puts his Holy Spirit finally inside of us to dwell with us. So now the good news of that is that Jesus is no longer limited to one body. Jesus now is present in the local church. He resides in us. So little boys and little girls, young men and women, uh, cannot see God, but they can see us. And it's when we love the way Jesus loves that people then can see God. And this is why it's so important for us to grow daily in our relationships of trust and obedience, to rely on his love, to, to pray and to worship and to study his word. Those things are so important. I love Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard says there are three components. There are three, he calls it the, the golden uh, triangle. A lot of uh, authors have written about the golden triangle. There are three elements, really, of discipleship. And the first major element has to deal with the essence of his love, that God is love. So everything for believers, everything that happens for us comes out of, out of a, a, from a father who loves. It, it'd be just like Cheryl loving our kids. But the kids will say, don't fump me, mommy. Don't fump me. But the, the reason mommy occasionally fumps her or him is because she loves that child so much. The reason that, that mommy makes the child eat broccoli is because it is so good for them, even if they don't want it. So just like James would say, he rejoices in trials. In other words, he says, 
I am supremely happy when trials and tribulations come because that helps me to conform more into the image of God. It's fought me, fought me so I can become more like Jesus. So that's one, the, the one element of the golden triangle. The second is understanding what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. That's what we're talking about right here. And the third one is those elements that Jesus does so that we can become more like him. Those are called the spiritual disciplines. So it's great. Just, just an FYI, in the month of October, Dave Foster and I are going to be teaching just sort of an introductory class on the spiritual disciplines. It'll be during the third hour, third hour through the month of October in, one, in room 104. But then over the next couple of weeks, as John mentioned earlier, we're going to have some of the basics. I know a lot of this is new for a number of people. So we're going to be covering some very basic elements of what it means, uh, who is God, uh, what, what is he like, uh, what is, what's the, this whole trinity, why are we here, what is the church, uh, is, is the Bible really trustworthy? So we'll be covering that in the third hour in two weeks uh, coming up. So that, that's just three weeks long. But if you need a little introduction, that might be really helpful for you. So we've talked about his love being manifested in our intimacy with him. And it's also manifested that we can have confidence before him as well. Verse 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected uh, in love. Basically, he's just saying God's children are confident. We can feel secure because this kind of love really banishes fear. You can't have love, you can't have reverence for God and hide from him at the same time. So it's not run from him in fear, it's run to him in, in awe. And I know for a lot of young men and women, you've had a bad experience uh, growing up. Maybe you've had a mom or a dad uh, and they have withheld their love from you as a means of correcting or disciplining you. Or perhaps you might even be a Christian living uh, living your Christian life. Just You're waiting. You, you just think this is the way God punishes you. And you're waiting for God to come down like a hammer upon you in some divine act of judgment because of maybe your past sins or something or, or as a sign of disapproval for what, for what you're doing. Uh, please rest assured that God is not waiting with a stick to beat you every time you fail. That's punishment. Now, like a good, like a good mommy, uh, you will get disciplined. I will get disciplined and I'll go through things that will help me grow because God is love. So the God who is love wants his children to have confidence and not fear. I love this verse, how it's um, paraphrased by the Amplified Bible. The perfect love of God in Christ turns fear out of doors and expels every kind of terror. Thirdly, let's see how his love is manifested in our relationships. We love because he first loved us. If, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And he does not have his brother. He does not love his brother whom he has, who he, whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. 
So when God begins, begins to fill our lives, not only does he give us a model, and Jesus, when we read the Gospels, we have a model of love. He also gives us the desire, that inward desire to love, but he also then gives us the ability through his indwelling Holy Spirit to actually love. And this is exactly what what Paul talks about throughout many of his epistles. And so, for example, in the, in the epistle to the church at Galatia, he has just gone through the fruit of the Spirit. Does anybody know the first fruit of the Spirit? Fruit of the Spirit? What, what's the first one? Love, yeah. So he's just gone through. Here's the fruit of the Spirit. This is what it looks like if, if God is really in you through his Spirit. He, his whole purpose is to indwell you. And it's going to be love. And he says, this is the way it's going to be manifest. And the very next thing he says is, brothers, if anyone's caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. And then he talks about bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Let each one test his own work, and then his, he'll have reason to boast, uh, will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load. And so basically what, what Paul is saying here, this is what it's like to be filled with the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to have the fruit of the Spirit. And the next thing it says, you're going to be involved in other people's lives. You're going to help. You're going to help them when they transgress and when they're under a load of weight. You're going to help them bear that weight because genuine loving demands caring and genuine caring demands burden bearing. And you will be there. You will be there. You will love one another. And this is exactly what it's going to look like. You're going to help them bear the heavy, the heavy burdens of life. Uh, not the normal responsibilities. He makes that clear in verse 5. Normal responsibilities, you're responsible to feed your children, you're responsible to love your wife, you're responsible uh, to respect your husband, you're responsible to study hard if you're a student. Those, those are the fortions of life, the backpacks of life. You're responsible for all that. But if anybody gets knocked down by, by the baros of life, the heavy burdens of life, you are to be there and help them bear uh, that load. Because that's exactly what, what Jesus would do. That fulfills the law of Christ. This is uh, the ultimate. John says it. Paul says it. Jesus says it. Uh, this is the ultimate apologetic. This is the way you participate in the drama of God's redemptive story. Uh, this is the visible manifestation now of the invisible God. This is the hallmark. This is the family characteristic of the church. So let me ask you, whose life right now, I want you to actually think about it, whose life right now are you allowing God's love to flow through you to them? Get it in your mind. Whose life are you now loving the way God loved you? Undeserving? J just like in an adoption. They don't perform. They don't earn. They don't pass a test. It's just totally undeserved love poured out upon somebody else. Whose life right now are you loving? This is the ultimate apologetic. Maybe it's somebody in your family. 
Maybe it's, maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in school. Maybe it's one of your kids. Now I want you to think about this. Once you've identified the person you are now loving, why do you love them? Why? Is there a reason that you love them? Are you loving them, displaying love to them because they have done something for you? Or are you loving them because perhaps they might do something for you? Remember, God loves you not because you deserve it, but in spite of yourself. So here's the challenge. I want you to make this sermon really practical. How this week, this week, how will you demonstrate the love of God to someone who doesn't deserve it and who cannot pay you back? How will you demonstrate godly love to someone who doesn't deserve it and who cannot pay you back? Well, that's the kind of love this world desperately needs to see. Well, let's pray together. Let's all stand up, and this, this will dis- close the service. You'll be dismissed. Uh, we'll be up here after if you'd like to, to chat. Thomas and I will be here, and uh, let's pray together. God, uh, thank you that you showed us this kind of love. And this is the kind of love that you have called the church to, the, the same kind of love that you poured yourself out on the cross for us. You demonstrated that love because it is your very essence, everything that flows from you, even things that we perceive that might be uh, discipline or hard or things we don't understand like like death or cancer or sickness or maybe a loss of a job. We, we perceive these, but... They flow out of you because you are love. And so like James, we, we just, God, give us that, that sense that we would rejoice in the fact that you love us that much to help to allow us to go through some things to help us to grow. Lord, help us to be good participants in the drama of redemption, to be a wonderful, visible manifestation of the invisible God. Help us, Lord, to be true to the hallmark of this family characteristic called love. This is how uh, people will know that we know you if we have this kind of love for others. And so I just I pray for all of us here, Lord. Thank you that you do love us this much. Thank you that you did manifest your love. And I just pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that this week we would be demonstrators of this incredible love that is not earned or deserved, but it's in spite of. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Parkview Church. We pray that you are blessed by God's Word. For additional teaching, resources, podcasts, as well as information on who we are and our upcoming events, please visit our website at www.parkviewchurch.org.